did not go to sleep last night. Oh, may the Lord have mercy on your soul. <laughs> So who went to sleep after 2 o'clock this morning? Woo! Who's been surviving all salt on coffee? Heathens. Heathens. <laughs> Somehow I made it through four years of Chi Alpha, a couple years on staff, and I did not drink coffee. The Lord was with me. We even had a Starbucks in our Chi Alpha ministry, and I still didn't drink coffee. I don't know, it was either the sustaining power of the Lord, or I'm just crazy, one or the other. Or both, you pick. So I'm going to let y'all know now. When you see my slides this morning, they are crimson and white and gray. Mostly crimson and gray just because I am not a henotheist. I do not believe that there are many gods warring with each other. But when it comes to football in the South, I'm just going to say, roll tie roll. Now remember, everybody, we are still brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. I wish everybody were washed to the crimson color of blood, of blood, but when we all get to heaven, crimson will still be there too. So I want to share a little bit with you all this morning about the idea of kingdom culture. Yesterday we talked about kingdom calling, and today I want to talk about kingdom culture. I remember as a kid growing up, like I said, I grew up in church my entire life. I literally cut my teeth on a pew. Yes. I was that kid who would go to church, fall asleep, wake up until this one preacher yelled into the microphone one night and I promised I would never go to sleep again. I thought that Jesus was coming back because he screamed so loudly into the microphone. And you know, you're in that, you know that phase where you're starting to nod and you're just sort of, yeah, I was seven years old. It was the freakiest thing I'd ever experienced in church at that point. And I was like, never again will I go to sleep. Just stay awake. I sat on my hands the entire night to try to stay awake. But here's what I learned. Not everyone functions as they should when you are in the kingdom of God. Because we are all broken people. We're all people who have been tainted by sin. And for some strange reason, we give in to sin more often than not. And I'm going to tell you now, I remember sitting in a class one day and there was a lady who said, well, the Apostle Paul was wrong when he wrote about original sin. The professor proceeded to look and if if beams could have come from his eyes and just like disintegrated this person I'm sure they would have because he says did you just say that the apostle Paul was wrong while writing scripture and she proceeds with her argument about why Paul was wrong and why there is no original sin and all of a sudden he just stops and goes you must not have 
ever encountered a child if you don't believe in original sin. And I quote him, because those little cretins are monsters of iniquity. <laughs> and I see some of y'all carried and walking around with toddlers and you're like, yes, they are. <laughs> because think about it, this is innate within us. We turn around, you, we've all seen it, I'm sure. The little kid, you tell them, no, don't do something. And they wait, they wait until you turn your back and you see them in their life. Nobody taught them to wait until you were gone. We've all done it. We all, we stop, we wait, and we look, and here's the problem. We carry that with us, but sometimes we are ignorant of our own sin and we don't even realize it. I remember as a kid, growing up in church, I was about 11, 12 years old. I remember my mom was diagnosed with cancer. We were faithful in our church, we attended, we served, we did all of these things. And the thing that caught me by surprise was, it was as if no one from our church ever came. No one from the community did anything. Oh, let me add to that. I grew up in a single parent household too. And so I'm sitting here thinking, okay, my mom has been diagnosed with cancer. This is not good. The church has been silent. And in the midst of the church being silent, I did not realize until many years later what happened to me because of that. I was thankful and grateful to God for what he did in my mom's life and through her being healed. But at the same time, I did not realize. I, I was sitting in a Chi Alpha meeting and there was a response time, and all of a sudden, God had shown me how I had become embittered toward the church for the church's failure to do what the church should have done based on Scripture. Now, here's the flip side of that. It wasn't only a case where I had become embittered about it. I actually chose to close myself off. So, you know, I'm physically present in church, I'm still participating in church. I'm doing all the right stuff. But in the midst of doing all of the right stuff, emotionally and relationally, I was cut off. There was a wall there that no one could penetrate. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting in this meeting. And God starts to work with me. And I'm like, God, you know, I, I don't like this. I, I don't like the whole emotion thing. Let's not go there. Mm -mm, we're not going to. And I'm really wrestling with God. I'm like, God, can you just leave that alone? Just don't, don't touch that. And this is what the Holy Spirit speaks to me. If I don't address this in your life, you will never do what I want you to. You know, I'm all about that whole, you know, remember, I came from a sanctified background, holiness people. So it was like, okay, you, you got a couple of things to do. You can either serve God or find yourself in trouble. I remember this phrase very vividly in my mind. Holiness or hell. Those were your options. There was no in between. It was holiness or hell. 
And I'm like, well, I don't want to go to hell, so, okay, let's deal with this, God. And this is what happened. God touched me in that moment, but it required that I not only be like, okay, God, I'm here, do what you want to do. It required that I get up. It required that I go to someone. And then I say, hey, here is what I'm dealing with. Would you pray for me and with me? Now, the great thing about it is that in that moment, God literally did a transforming work in my heart and in my mind. And all of a sudden, I'm able to like go around, talk to people, do all this stuff, be open about my struggles, be open about things that I found to be shameful. But it was in the process of being open and vulnerable that I found the true nature of relationship in the community of Christ and in the kingdom of God. So, you know, here's the thing. In my mind, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, why God? And, you know, I was one of those people, I would yell at God. And I'm happy that God was big enough to deal with my tantrums. He still is. But I remember I'm yelling at God, and I'm like, God, I'm serving you. My family's serving you. Why are things so difficult? I know people who don't even believe in you, and they seem to have it better than I do. And part of my problem was that I was looking at other people and I'm looking at my circumstances instead of looking to God. So today we're going to go to the Old Testament. I know y'all are like, wait, he said he was a New Testament teacher and professor. Yeah, we're going to the Old Testament today. And that's okay. We're going to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Because we found the story of King Jehoshaphat. And King Jehoshaphat actually is one of these people who starts doing the right thing. And when he starts doing the right thing, he faces opposition. Remember yesterday I said that when you begin to follow Jesus, it does not mean that your life becomes a bed of roses and everything. For those of you who like coffee, not, everything doesn't smell like coffee. It just doesn't work that way. But what we find is that because you are following Jesus you face opposition. Minimally, you're going to face opposition from the world. Sadly enough, sometimes we have disagreements amongst the body and we sometimes face opposition within the church because we don't do what we're supposed to do. But, oh wait, maybe forgiving people instead of keeping the opposition going. Now King Jehoshaphat was one of these people, he was the king of Judah, so he was King David's great, great, great grandson. And he forms an alliance with King Ahab, who is the king of Israel up in the north. So they're going back and forth, and they're like, okay, we're going to fight together. Now remember, Ahab is not like the best of people. Ahab is a wicked, wicked king. Who did not do that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the ways of his father David, and he died. And after the death of Ahab, Jehoshaphat is confronted. And it's like, hey, by the way, why are you being all wicked? You know, the Lord can't stand wickedness, right? But you do have this good about you. You tore down the idols, you tore down the high places, you tore down the Asherah poles and all these pagan, like, symbols of worship. So the Lord's like, hey, get the rest of it right. So Jehoshaphat goes and he brings reform to the king, to the kingdom of Judah. He brings reform to his royal court. And that's where our story picks up 
in chapter 20 of 2 Chronicles. It says, After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Mennonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom and from beyond the sea. And behold, they are at Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. So all of a sudden we find that this man is facing opposition, though he's doing the right thing. So the Bible says that Jehoshaphat was afraid and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah that came to seek the Lord. Our lives all fit together. Anybody ever done the whole six degrees of separation deal? Do y'all know what that is? Okay, so basically, the story goes that everybody on the planet is connected in some way within at least six degrees. So it's like, okay, so you know so-and-so who knows so-and-so who knows so-and-so. So you know this person who is randomly over in Tel Aviv right now through at least about six people or less. So... All of our lives fit together like a puzzle or like a tapestry, and our lives intersect at various points in times. I've even encountered that here where it's like, wait, I know people who currently live on the other side of the planet. It's like, oh, I know that person or I'm related to that person. And it's, it's a really cool thing. But here's the principle that we need to take from that. What affects one person affects the entire body. And as a result, you should not face your problems alone. Because see, here's what we do. We try to be all big and bad and bold. I got this and now nobody needs to know about this. And it's like, wait, what's the problem? Do you think that because you face a problem and you share it that people might think that you're weak? Do you think that, oh, wait a minute. Well, people might not think that I'm as mature or as strong in the faith as I need to be if I need them to come pray for me. Even Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, hey, pray. Pray during this time. Now, you know, the disciples fell asleep. But even Jesus asked them to come and pray. We don't face our problems alone. Because when you face your problems alone, you don't really become as effective at overcoming those problems. Now think about it. Jehoshaphat, he, was, he just, the Bible says, you know, hey, he was afraid. Think about it. We always love, the, you know what, we're not afraid, we're not fearful. To, I'm just be honest. There are moments and times where I am afraid. who was actually in a foreign country actually just a number of months ago. And this person was like, okay, everything's good, I'm here. Everybody thought, okay, yeah, they're in a nice spot, no big deal. Then all of a sudden, North Korea's like, hey, we're going to bomb that place because we know a lot of Americans are there. Sister turned around and was like, I was afraid, okay? I had to pray. I had to see God in that moment. And she said, here's the thing. I couldn't do it by myself. 
because I knew by myself I was going to get stuck in my fears in my head about a bomb coming at us and killing all of us. And so she said, somebody came alongside her. Here's the thing. She didn't ask anybody to help her. They observed her. They saw her. And they said, something's not right. Let me go see about her. And in that moment, they said, hey, you seem, are you okay? And she goes, I'm scared. They're like, I'm scared too. Let's pray. And in that time, they were able, in the midst of their fear, to start ministering to other people because they were no longer focused on their circumstances, but about caring about other people. And so in the midst of being afraid, Jehoshaphat gathered all the people of Judah, calls a fast, and is like, hey, let's seek God. Because that's what each of us needs to do. We need to seek the face of God. And we need to remember what he has done. Because here's what we often do. We'll say, okay, God, I'm here. Do your thing. But sometimes we need to encourage ourselves by remembering what God has done. I always think to myself, God's activity in your present that definitely affects your future is sometimes rooted in what he has already done for you in the past. But what we do is we stop and we say, okay, well, I'm here. What's God going to do now? Sometimes you need to remember what God has already done in your life. In order that you can trust him in the present to do what needs to be done that will affect your future for his kingdom and for his glory. And so all of a sudden we find in verse 5 this beautiful thing that takes place. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it. And have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and we will cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that has come against us. And this is the most poignant part of this passage, I believe. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. How often do we start to look at our circumstances and the problem without looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? 
We turn around and we start to look at all the situations and we begin to worry instead of looking to God. Now here's the thing. Sometimes we need to stop pretending and just acknowledge, God, I don't know what to do. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look to you because here's what we normally do in our lives. We say, here's my plan. God bless it. Come on, let's be honest. We, we, we make out our plans. We set our agenda. And then we say, here's the plan. God bless this. Or better yet, here's what we do. We start our agenda. We have not consulted the Lord at all. Then we find ourselves in the midst of a horrible situation because we have royally messed up. We say, God bless this mess. And somehow work it out for your glory. Can, can you do that, God? Can you work a little miracle? Where maybe, maybe the more appropriate approach to this situation would be to say, okay, God, here's a blank sheet of paper. I'm not putting my agenda on it. Give me instruction, Lord. Now notice, that does not mean that there will not be bumps along the road and trips and thorns and thistles, but it does mean that instead of you running back saying, okay, God, bless this mess that I've created, you can then say, God, remember what you told me to do? Remember the agenda that you set before me? I'm thinking about Paul and Silas at the moment. It wasn't like, you know, God was like, okay, he didn't know what was going to come. That's the reason why when Paul and Silas are in stocks and bonds and they're in the inner prison, they can still praise God. And God then releases them from that prison because God had already set the agenda for what they were going to be doing. And here's the great thing about it. People came to know Jesus in the midst of their pain and suffering. God was able to use that for his glory. It says, meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. This is when things get pretty interesting. God wants to use you to bring comfort and hope and healing to others. He wants to use you to bring comfort and hope, to bring healing to other people. But here's the thing, more often than not, we disqualify ourselves. We put ourselves in boxes. Or, even worse, we allow other people to put us in those boxes. I'm gonna say, don't live in the box. Because when you live in the box, you have now limited how you will allow for God to use you. I remember talking to a friend of mine one day and we were going back and forth and I said, well, hey, why don't you do this? He goes, well, I don't want to have to deal with this. I said, but what if God calls you to do this? I said, so what you're telling me then is that you are going to willingly place limitations based on what you know on how God is able to use you. We sort of ended the conversation right there for a little bit. Then he comes back and goes, hey, okay, I did it. We're good now. 
And I said, was it that hard? He goes, it wasn't hard, I just didn't want to do it. Which is what happens to us most of the time. We allow for people to put us in boxes or we put ourselves in boxes based on what our primary strengths are sometimes. Maybe how people can best utilize us for their own benefit and gain and we stop and we say, okay, well, that person doesn't do that because that's not their gifting. And that's true, I mean, you know, don't try to jump out here and do something that you know God is not gifting you to do. At the same time, there are moments and times where the Spirit of God will come upon you. And when he does, you need to step out and you need to do what he's calling you to do, whether that's your normal gifting or not. <laughs> but what we do is we say, well, God, that's not how you normally use me, so I'm not going to allow you to use me in this way now. And what you are then saying to God is that God does not know what he is doing. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. The omniscient, all-powerful creator of all things who holds everything together by the, by the power of his own word doesn't know what he's doing. Allow for God to use you to bring comfort and healing. So here's what happens in this text. Verse 14 picks up and says, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. I'm going to stop right there for a minute. The battle is not yours. The battle is God's. Now, here's the thing. This dude turns around and speaks to all the assembly and to the king. It says that he was son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. Now here's the thing about the Levites. You had the, the priests over here and you had the rest of the Levites and all of this. But the sons of Asaph were a group of people who were normally associated with worship and music. So all of a sudden, the percussionist becomes a prophet. Think about that for a minute. The percussionist, the guy back here who's on the drums, suddenly begins to prophesy. And I'm sure there are people like, wait, 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 whoa. No, he's of the sons of Asaph. Shouldn't he be back there playing his music? Or people, wait, shouldn't they be the person that's behind the scenes? Shouldn't they be doing this instead of this? And here's my word to you on that. God does a better job of Godding than you will ever do. So let God God the way he wants to God, and don't you try to take over his job of Godding. Because when you look at it, you suddenly have something that seems out of place. When in actuality, it's just how it needs to be. 
Because maybe, just maybe, Jehaziel's experience and his knowledge in his time of worship with the Lord in his private time or his time of worship in the corporate body led to a point where God spoke to him because he had an understanding of what God wanted to speak to the community in that moment. Now here's the thing. That didn't certainly mean that, you know, hey, Every prophecy has to come through Jehaziel. Yeah, we're going to go there for a minute. Because see, here's what happens. Well, this person over here is the tongue talker. This person over here is the interpreter. This person over here is the prophet. This person over here is the administrator. And here's the thing. Since when did the Bible say that if God used you in one way, one time, this is the only way that he would use you? And since when did it come up that, oh wait, because God uses this person, that's the only person that they would use, that he would use? Because you think about it, all of a sudden, if Sister Susie is not the person that shun dies, it's not good. <laughs> if Brother Billy is not the person with the word of knowledge, we can't receive it. And so we as a community need to be people of the Spirit who listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church and obey and follow what the Spirit is saying. Which means that the Spirit of God will bear witness with our spirits when the Spirit truly speaks. That's what I've loved about this entire time. It's like, ooh, that right there registers and the Spirit of God within me, just like, yeah, that right there is the word of the Lord that you need to receive. But sometimes we don't want to hear what the Spirit is saying. But we need to. Especially when your life is on the line like in this situation. He says in verse 16, Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of seas. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Let's be honest. We all wrestle with problems and they come up at various times in our lives. And more often than not, we don't share those issues. We hide them. We hold them in. We conceal them due to shame, due to regret. Or we think, what is this person going to say about me? Or what are they going to think about me if I share this? 99 times out of 100 people are going to be like, oh, wow, I wrestled with that or I struggled with that. Oh, yeah, I went through that experience. Oh, let me come and pray for this person. But we believe the lies of the enemy that if we hide it somehow, that makes it better. If we had the fact that we went home over break and we found out that our parents are getting a divorce and things are falling apart and I don't know how to deal with this, if I had that, things will be okay. But that's not the case. 
If I hide the fact that I was abused or molested, all of a sudden I can just keep this in me. But the problem is this, when we expose these things, we are now open to receiving healing for these things. When we find out that we're sick in our bodies and we share that, all of a sudden it's a case where now people know to pray for me. And now that I got people with me, joining forces with me to pray and seek God and bombard heaven on my behalf, I got back up like nobody's business. <laughs> but more often than not, we hide in shame. And because of that, we fail to receive the healing and the wholeness that God has for us. When we look at this passage, God not only says, hey, I'm going to fight the battle. He not only says, oh yeah, here, by the way, here's the enemy's battle plan. So you know, you know how they're going to come. You know what's going on. Now, let it be known. I'm going to fight the battle. Because one, they acknowledge, hey, we don't have the power to withstand this. And two, we don't know what to do. So God, we're looking to you to do whatever you can. And I guarantee you, when the Almighty, creator of the universe, is standing by your side, what now do you have to fear? Now here's the thing. We face problems. We've come together. That's great. The Lord has spoken. Now it's time for us to do something. We need to acknowledge God for his activity. Because here's the thing. God's word is good. His promises are yes and amen. His, his word is good. If he says he will do it, he will do it. So notice, nothing's happened. They have not gone into battle or anything. But suddenly... In verse 18, then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Notice something. It was the leadership that led people in worshiping God. The king starts off with the worship, and the people followed. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, I'm starting to wonder just a little bit now if people were like, see, if Jehaziel had not opened his mouth yesterday, we would not be out here. Why in the world would you ever put a worship team in front of the army? <laughs> and so now I'm sure some of those sons of Asaph are like, mm, mm -mm. Lord, what are you doing? You better come through right now. Because we have no, we're just here in our holy time. And our job is to sing. We don't have swords. We don't have shields. So God, you better show up. 
Verse 22, and when they began to sing and praise, the Lord sent an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end to the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. God made a promise to Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah that I will take care of the enemy. The battle is not yours, but it is mine. He says that same thing to you today, that the battle does not belong to you. The battle belongs to him. So no, you cannot fix everything that's going on in your life. You cannot fix all of the opposition. You cannot overcome it in your own power. But when you hand it over to Jesus, who rose up with all power in his hands, you all of a sudden know that the one who can deal with the issue will deal with the issue when you give it to him. The problem is we don't want we don't want to let it go, but we have to let it go. And when we let it go, I can tell you it is an amazing thing to see because suddenly God is at work. Now, in addition to this, I'm going to move a little bit beyond what we have on the screen. So I'm moving to verse 24 because this is another important part of it. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. Think about that. They had so much stuff from the battle they didn't even fight that they just loaded up everything they could and they couldn't get anything else. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for they were blessed, for, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Barakah to this day. Now, here's the thing. I usually say the use of biblical languages and sermons is like underwear. I should assume you have it on, but I don't need to see it. Here's the thing. The Valley of Barakah is the Valley of Blessing. They received of the Lord there and they blessed the Lord there. So here's the thing that you need to recognize. When you are going through issues and you have trouble and you face opposition and you give it over to God, God does not just stop the opposition. He's a bigger God than that. He blesses you as you go through that opposition. He blesses you because you have given it over to him and allowed for him to handle it the way he so chooses. So I want to know, what do you need to give over to the Lord? What do you need to share with other people? 
I remember going through this phase where I was like, God, I'm not gonna share anything with people. I'm not gonna do all of that. I'm just gonna you know, stay walled in. I, I can handle it, God. It's just me and you, Jesus, and I got it. And all of a sudden, there were two things that came to my mind. The first was this. If there is a call for people to bear one another's burdens, there is also a call that you share your burdens with others. And I was like, God, never thought about it that way. And I was like, but then, but then I began to think about it. If there is truly a call to bear one another's burdens, it requires that those burdens be shared. The second thing that came to me in the midst of this is, oh, like, you know, well, it's just me and Jesus. It's me and Jesus. It's never just you and Jesus. Because the church of Jesus Christ is not just you and Jesus. You are called to Christ in the context of community. And here's the thing, if, if it's just you and Jesus, no. Think about Paul's analogy of the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You are no longer, if it's just you and Jesus, you are no longer part of the body. You are a dying piece of flesh over in the corner that has been severed from the body. But we say, oh, it's just me and Jesus. And here's the thing, that's another one of those Western American church deals that is not true. Yes, you are saved by Christ, but you were saved in the context of the kingdom of God, which is a community. And as a result, we must be there to serve one another and to work with one another and to allow people to look into the windows of our souls and see that which needs healing. And then those of us who see what needs to be touched by God need to allow for God to use us as a conduit through which he ministers to bring that healing and wholeness and comfort to those who need it. But far too often, we look and we also think to ourselves, well, that person could never be used to minister to me. Oh, wait, they're not popular enough, so what could God ever do through them? Oh, they stutter. I don't like the way they pray, so how could God ever use them to speak publicly? Oh, well, that person's a little nerdy person, so I don't know if they really know anything about this. They, they won't understand me. Let me tell you something. When God is working in and through somebody, it is not that person that needs to understand you. It is God who already knows you better than you know yourself and will allow for that person to have an empathy for you that is beyond your imagination. And for those of you who feel like, well, God could never use me, I want to tell you now. God will use you if you are willing to be used. As you look at the story of Jehoshaphat and what takes place within the kingdom of Judah, I think we can all find ourselves somewhere in this text. You, you might be like Jehoshaphat who 
experiences the problem directly because the enemy is coming against you. You might be like the other people who will be directly affected by it. Or you might find yourself in a situation where you see that you can be used by God. So I want you to bow your heads with me right now. And I just want to take some time to pray. And I'm going to ask that campus pastors make themselves available to pray as well. God, I thank you first and foremost for who you are. That you redeem your people, that you call us your own. I pray, God, that you would reach out and stretch forth your hand in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That you would bring healing to people physically, emotionally, spiritually. I pray, oh God, that during this time, as we come to seek your face together as a community, that you would be glorified, that you would work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purposes, oh God. We ask, Lord, that you would do what only you can do, that you would use us beyond anything we've ever thought or imagined for the glory of your great name.